Hey everyone, this is Brian from the Tennis IQ Podcast. Josh and I hope that you are enjoying the content and discussions that we put out week after week. If you'd like to support the podcast and help us to continue to produce quality episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership. Currently, we have three tiers of support, the fan level at $3 per month, the supporter level at $7 per month, and the champion level at $20 per month. Benefits of joining the Tennis IQ podcast community include episode transcripts, participation in book club discussions, and access to monthly masterclasses with me and Josh. For more on these benefits of support, head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership. Thank you so much. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. For today's episode, we are going to discuss the 2023 U.S. Open. Um, and I think we'll we'll definitely talk about the um, both the champions and the finalists. Um, on the women's side, Coco Goff beat Arena Sabalenka. And on the men's side, Novak Djokovic uh, defeated Daniel Medvedev. So we'll definitely talk about both the champions and the runners up on, on both sides. Um, and I think we'll also, there's also some other players that I know we want to at least talk about a little bit in terms of, um, both their performance, but also, you know, bring in some quotes in terms of their perspective on, you know, on, on some of the matches and, you know, and, and, you know, always with the goal to try to tie in, uh, what we saw and, and what the what different players were um, were sharing with with the mental game and, and bring up different perspectives related to that. Um, so I think a nice place to start would be to look at um, Sabalenka. Um, she, uh, you know, I think it was very interesting that she, when when Igor Swiatek lost earlier in the tournament, it was going to be cl- it was clear that regardless of Sabalenka's end result that she was going to become number one. So I think that's always an interesting dynamic. And that created an interesting dynamic where she knew going into that final against Coco that either way, she was going to become number one. So I think that is maybe one starting point. I mean, I think it was an, an interesting final and uh, definitely curious to hear what, what, what you thought, Brian, um, where, you know, Sabalenka came out really hot, played really well that first set. And then things started to slip away. And I think, um, and I know we were talking about this a little bit beforehand, but I think her semifinal match um, against Madison Keys could have had something to do with it in terms of, you know, her body language, her attitude in portions of that semifinal match, especially the beginning of it, where she lost that first set six love. She was down, uh, down a break. I think it was actually like five, four, where Keys was serving for it. Um, in the second set where, you know, she wasn't at her best, was definitely down on herself, managed to win, but couldn't quite manage to turn things around in that same sort of way, especially with the crowd against her and with Coco playing, you know, unbelievably in certain parts of that match. Um, but yeah, what were some of your thoughts about, about Sabalenka's performance? Well, I think your note about the number one is, is very good. In fact, Going into the Madison Keys match, she knew she was going to be number one because she was actually introduced by the 
you know the person who introduces the players to the crowd as the new number one come on come Monday. So I thought that was a pretty interesting way to to introduce her, especially since they don't tell you know where she's from because of uh, because of the war with Russia and Ukraine. Um, so that that's that's how they chose to introduce her to the crowd. And yeah, she and in that match against Key, she started pretty poorly and you were able to read it in her body language very clearly and it was it was just a little bit striking that the body language would be that negative that fast and um, just a lot of gesturing toward the box etc and I'll be honest I gave up on the match after the first set and really the first three games I, I and so when I woke up the next day and, and I saw the score, I was really, really surprised that she was able to pull it out. Now that give her credit for because she is a great fighter, um, no doubt about that, you know, and 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 that she was able to sort of fight through that whatever demons that she was experiencing again, you know, against against Keys. But um, that was, I think, always going to be a tougher task against Coco. You know, Madison Keys, while she's a great ball striker, you can also make a lot of errors in matches. She'd been on a, on a hot streak, obviously, in, in this tournament, and, and she's been a Grand Slam finalist in the past. So she's a great player, um, but also subject to streaks at times. And so, you know, maybe Sabalenka knows that. Maybe it's a little bit easier to hang in there. Um, but then, yeah, as you said, Josh, you know, Sabalenka came out, played a great first set against Goff, but then things began to change and, and Goff started to gain some momentum. And then, of course, the crowd was so into it that it was going to be really hard for uh, Sabalenka to turn that around. And I think the body language, again, kind of got the best of her a bit uh, in that third it, it, I think it becomes really hard when she, once you're down a break to have negative body language and, and to, to really crawl back. You know, there's sometimes there's this notion of uh, some negativity can help bring us to be more intense and more focused, but that's that's not a guarantee. Sometimes that works, and and, and sometimes it doesn't. And 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 if you if you notice that you're getting negative and and you continue to play poorly or the other person plays really well, as I think Goff did, um, that the, to me this is a match that that Coco won, not that Sabalenka lost, and, and and so it's hard to to get back to get back there. Um, so it'd be interesting to know, Josh, like you know your first point. How much did the number one thing did did it make a difference? Was it was it on her mind? Um, you know, was she a little bit more emotional because of that, or were there some other factors going on there? It's tough to know. It's tough to know. I mean, I I know that you know, look, looking at her post match press conference, she was talking about the number one ranking, but sort of in a different way. Yeah. Where, um, sort of from a actually from a motivation standpoint, and I think this is something actually we could talk about with. Some of the other players, whether it be Coco, whether it be Djokovic as well, uh, because they all touched on sort of motivation in, in their own way. And I think it actually can be a sort of a theme here. Um, but but she talked about how, you know, the, the number one ranking is 
is important to her, but that she cares about sort of, you know, what happens these next few months in terms of finishing the year at that point. So there's a, a quote that she had from, from that post-match interview where she said, but, you know, like for me, it's more about an end of the, you know, ending the year as world number one, not just like becoming world number one. And then the next week you're second. It's good so that I can say I've been number one, but I, I really would like to finish the year as world number one. That's why I'm like, you know, still positive and I'm still motivated. So I thought that was interesting that, you know, she was, it sounds like maybe she wasn't feeling as devastated or as upset after the match, because at least she knew that, um, you know, she was about to become world number one. And that was exciting for her, but I think it's, it's tough to know how that impacted things. And, you know, I think sometimes people can have certain things in the back of their mind, like a ranking, like maybe a rating, like, you know, not, not that, not that they're using it as an excuse, but in a certain way, it's almost like a, a mechanism where, where rather than feeling like they maybe need to risk it or put, put something out, you know, put everything out there. They're like, okay, no, I'll be fine. You know, even if, even if I lose this match. Um, so I, I, again, that, that's just, you know, really, I guess, but I think, I think, yeah, it, it, it really was a clear shift after that first set where she really was dominant in that first set against Coco. Coco, you know, wasn't, didn't seem to be at her best. And then, then in that second set, and it was, it was a battle, certainly. Um, it, it seemed like that's where things started to shift. And maybe that's where Sabalenka lost some of that self-belief. Maybe that's where, you know, she felt like she was battling more than just Coco. Maybe it was, you know, the crowd and everyone was obviously very excited for Coco and for the possibility of things starting to turn around. Um, but yeah, and, and then in that third set, when, you know, in reality, it really is one set all, it just sort of felt from the start that it was Coco's set to lose. And yes, maybe the crowd again had something to do with that. But, it, you know, I think Sabalenka seemed defeated. Um, and I think, you know, maybe there is some sort of acceptance where it's like, okay, you know, no matter what, I'm going to be number one on Monday. Um, or maybe that didn't have anything to do with it, but she, from a body language standpoint, from an attitude standpoint, it was almost like every match or sorry, every point she lost, she was almost like laughing or like, you know, almost like that sarcastic sort of thing that Medvedev does at times where it's like, oh, here we go again, that that sort of thing. And almost like that acceptance of the defeat before it even happened. Yeah, and and another player who talked about the numbers was, was Fiontek and that perhaps the number one ranking was too present in her mind because she, um, you know, if she lost Ostapenko as she did, she was going to lose that, that ranking. And, and she mentioned how she still needs to be more like, you know, Roger, Novak, Rafa, in terms of how to continue to focus on the tournament itself and not the rankings. And and she mentioned that, you know, she's a player who, who likes numbers. Um, and so maybe this is also similar a little bit to Alcaraz's mention of maturity, but maybe this is also a maturity moment for, for Iga to learn to put some of that stuff aside um, which obviously is hard because I think now more than ever, people talk about 
rankings and Grand Slam titles and all these achievements more than than ever before in the past. I think, you know, I'm dating myself here, but when I was a kid, nobody really talked about number of Grand Slams. Like you knew that Roy Emerson had 12, but it wasn't like as big of a deal, it seemed. And even, you know, back then, you didn't have computer rankings coming out every Monday. These That's things, interesting. Right? These things were compiled in a slightly different way. Well, not um, everyone would go to Australia. Exactly. Yeah, not until it changed to a hardcore tournament. So the, the spotlight, I think, on these things has grown and grown and grown. And therefore, it also tends to grow more and more in the minds of players. And it's the same with with uh, other aspects of tennis with ratings, whether that's UTR or WTN, these things are now much more present, much more dynamic. And it's a lot more for players to deal with now than, than in the past. So that doesn't, you know, that includes professional players. And so there's, there's a lot and they're asked about it a lot. You know, you listen in these press conferences and they're, they're asked about these things. And so learning to, you know, kind of Manage all that in your own mind and, and manage that in your own team, I think, is, a, is an important piece. And I'm sure Sabalenka will, will learn from it. I think it's great that, you know, right after the match, she's, she continued to give herself something to play for. And that's, that's a real positive. So she'll be motivated, hopefully not only for the rest of the year, but all right, let's say she does finish the year number one. Let's do it again. Or, or whatever that is. Let me continue to explore how good I can be because she's... She's a very good player. She's made a lot of strides these last couple of years in terms of serve and her consistency and so forth. And But everybody, there are always new levels of performance. And it'd be, it's, it, you know, for her, I think it's exciting to see where she can go with her game. Absolutely. And, and yeah, she's had a fantastic year, which is why she's now number one, um, you know, between Australia, between um yeah you know just had, she, she's had a, a lot of great wins she's i think in many ways sort of put it all together yeah. this year yeah, she's made the semifinals at all four you know exactly which is which is no small feat i mean that's that's a certain level of consistency of performance that you know i, I think most players would would yeah most players are just about everybody can 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 really admire so um no i think she's in many ways put it together i think she's also had quotes about sort of this year sort of taking responsibility for her own tennis game you know not feeling like she you know and i know she's had people around her maybe telling her some of the right things and maybe she wasn't listening um but i think she's gotten to a point where she's ready to maybe do it for herself or you know just take take responsibility and i think you know there's always there's always setbacks there's always ups and downs it's never a straight line from you know progress never goes in a completely straight line from where we are right now to where we want to be it's never you know i'm i'm improving this percentage each day or each week and there's always you know ups and downs you know we can think of it sort of like the stock market or something like that, where there's, you know, on a certain day it's up and on a certain day it's down and there's a little plenty of emotion, but you know, we can, we can look at, at the the year that she's had, which is, which is remarkable, which is, which is why she's now number one. So she's certainly earned that. And I agree that it's important and impressive that she has, you know, has seems to have a lot of motivation for these next 
couple of months in terms of, you know, really trying to finish the year on a strong note, trying to not just reach number one, which she has already now, but finish the year at number one. And I think it's, it's always important whether it's her. And I think we'll talk more about Djokovic and, you know, sort of being able to sustain his motivation, you know, at his age and everything that he's accomplished. Um, but I think it's, it's really important, especially as somebody accomplishes great things, whether that's becoming number one, whether that's, you know, winning, you know, many titles as Djokovic has, um, that they continue to find new reasons to motivate themselves. Because I know, you know, something we've talked about a lot on this, on this podcast is, you know, if, if we set our goals just based on outcomes, if we set our goal where it's, okay, this is all for this tournament, it's all for the U S open. I'm trying to win the U S open. I'm trying to become world number one, or I'm trying to run a marathon or whatever it is. After we do it, what's what's left? How do we stay motivated? How do we, you know, what wh- what do we still have left? And I think you know we've we've talked about the book Atomic Habits through, by James Clear, and he talks about this the same same idea where it's like you know instead of setting a goal based on one singular thing, whether that's an outcome like a ranking or a rating or a tournament, can we start with the identity piece where it's like, hey, my identity is to be you know, a, a tennis player, but really to try to, you know, my identity, my goal, or to try to become the best player that I can possibly be. And, you know, that doesn't finish when you reach number one, That that's okay. How can I keep that going? How can I keep finding that new level of performance that I'm after? And I, I think for her, it's very clear that over these next couple of months, she wants to, you know, hold on to that ranking. So I, I, I really like that quote. Yeah, for sure. You know, a good book that also helps can help people explore that difference between setting goals as like winning things or rankings versus, you know, what James Clear is referring to is a book called Mastery by George Leonard written in the nineties, you know, and it's, uh, it really helps people to understand that there are always new levels of performance and that the journey really never ends that these 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 milestones really or that's what that's what a ranking is a tournament is they're simply milestones on your on that road to mastery and that that road is 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 a never-ending one and and the more you know players can look at it that way and i think that's what we've seen from the great players is that they they understand that that this is about them exploring their skills and their talent and seeing where it can take them um, obviously, with the sport like tennis, age and your physical condition will will at some point play a bigger factor than than it does earlier on, and and then so it may, things may drop off there, right? But um, but yeah, if you can explore it as long as you can, that's that's I think a, a good goal. Um, how about we talk about a little bit on the men's side, Josh? Um, maybe some stuff on Alcaraz and Medvedev. Absolutely. And, and yeah, we can, we can talk about them and sort of save, save Coco and, and Djokovic till a little bit later. And then, uh, and then, uh, you know, give them their fair, their fair due and, and, uh, and, and talk more about that, them and their performances. Um, but yeah, no, I think with both Alcaraz and Medvedev, and they, they had quite a match against each other. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about. I think, you know, first with, with Alcaraz, I think he had a lot of, lot of expectations going into this tournament i mean after that absolutely epic 
five set win against Djokovic at Wimbledon and the Cincinnati um, match too, right? I mean, that was a great match, even though he lost that one, but it was a great match. Absolutely. I mean, maybe, you know, certainly one of the best, if not the best masters finals in, in history, really. I mean, just in terms of the competitiveness, in terms of some of those points, in terms of, you know, the, the stakes of a uh, number one and number two battling it out the way that they were. Um, but yeah, I think with, with everything going on with him being number one with Wimbledon, with that Cincinnati match, I think there was a lot of expectations on him. And, um, there's a lot of talk about having a, you know, having that rematch that, uh, Alcaraz Djokovic rematch at, um, you know, in the final. And it was also interesting from a ranking standpoint here where he knew, I think, I think I think Djokovic just had to win one his first round match. I think that's what it was, um, or maybe yeah, even just he had no points to defend, right? Because he didn't. Yeah, play he didn't have points year. from last year. <clears throat> Alcaraz had won the tournament last year, so he had two thousand points to defend. Um, and so, you know, as the tournament progressed, it was clear that Alcaraz was going to become number two after the tournament. Um, so, I think that that could have been a factor as well. But I think there was a lot of expectations more than anything going into it, and I think. With that match against Medvedev, um, you know, Alcaraz had beaten Medvedev pretty comfortably the two times before that they had played. Early, sorry, the two time, the two more recent times that they'd played. Um, Medvedev beat him, I think, in 2021 before Alcaraz's big rise. But earlier this year, um, Alcaraz beat Medvedev twice, both at Wimbledon and I think the other was at Indian, Indian Wells. Wells. Yeah, yeah, and both times in straight sets. Um, and you know, not it, it didn't have a set closer than six three, I believe. So, um, you know, pretty comfortable win both times. So, I think there was you know a lot of expectations that Alcaraz would win that match and maybe even you know in a relatively comfortable way, even though Medvedev, you know, has has won the U.S. Open just just a couple of years ago, had been playing quite well. So, I think Alcaraz, you know, maybe had certain expectations that he'd win that semifinal match and that he'd and and also about the the potential final um and yeah I, I think he in certain ways didn't didn't manage to bring out his best stuff especially in portions of that semifinal i think that you know that first set was was very close and then that second set he his level definitely dropped off his consistency you know took took a, a dip and yes, he fought back in that third set. Definitely. And, you know, the fourth set was competitive, but um, yeah, no, I, I think he almost seemed to like run out of options. I think he, his consistency took a turn for the worse. And again, this is while Medvedev is playing just incredible defense, getting everything back while also attacking and hitting winners. So, you know, it was tough. And I think, I think and we can talk a little bit about his quote from after that match, I know you mentioned it before we we started, Brian. Um, but yeah, I think his, you know, he was clearly getting pretty frustrated with himself at certain points throughout that match. So I think it, you know, it's also interesting to think about the impact that that potentially had. And you know, Medvedev mentioned before playing that he needed to be at his absolute best in eleven out of ten, and then I think he gave himself a grade of twelve. Right. Out of 10. Did. Right. So when Medvedev is playing his best, he's very difficult to play because his defense is is excellent. Um, he's good off of both sides. 
And, you know, he did a good job of, um, I think, keeping Alcaraz off balance. And, and like you said, Alcaraz was maybe not quite on his game for whatever reason, um, like he had been in, in, in some past matches. He made a lot of mistakes, especially, I thought, on the backhand. Um, we saw more drop shot mistakes or drop shots that were not as good in this match, you know, which might indicate some level of tension uh, for, for various reasons. So I thought, I was actually surprised in his press conference that he, he brought this up, but I think it was, it, obviously he thinks it's valid, that he wasn't maybe yet mature enough to handle <clears throat> some of this and that he needs more more experience and that he needs to talk to his team and Juan Carlos Ferrero about about these things. And that's a good good bit of self-awareness on his part to realize that uh, more experience and more maturity as a player and in the game is necessary to win these kinds of matches. And um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And uh, I think it was great to see Medvedev play so well to play that 12 out of 10. Um, he knew that he was going to have to do that again against Djokovic. And I'm not, you know, that, that that's a tougher thing to do, especially with uh, the way Novak has been playing. And I think Novak learned a little bit from the last time that they played a U.S. Open final. So we thought um, Medvedev didn't quite reach that level. The second set was obviously very good. But, um, yeah, I think uh, there, were, there were some things that prevented Daniil from, from uh, executing as well in that, in that final. Absolutely. And I think for, you know, starting with the semifinal, he really managed to play the, at a high level. And I think it seemed like emotionally he was also pretty, seemed pretty sort of emotionally stable throughout mm-hmm. that, that semifinal as well. And I think he's, he's the type of person that, you know, certainly has ups and downs and sometimes, you know, going at it with the crowd or the umpire um, or the other player, if he's playing Sissipas, but um, <laughs> he, uh, it, it, it seemed in that semifinal, he was more so just sticking with the tennis. And yes, you know, I think he recognized that people were rooting for Alcaraz, especially once Medvedev was winning and he, the crowd wanted to sort of, see you know extend the match but um so i think you know at certain points he was sort of trying to pump up the crowd and sort of using his hand to sort of um try to increase the cheering maybe after he won some points but he wasn't he wasn't doing some of the antics that he has done in the past and i think in a certain way i i, I think it, it could have connected to maybe an increased level of focus where maybe he gets motivated certain times by the crowd or by having an an enemy or a rival, but it seemed like he was just able to problem solve and play incredible defense and be patient and frustrate Alcaraz. And it seemed like that's where his focus was rather than on some of the, you know, some of the drama that it, that it sometimes is. So that, that, that was what I noticed in that semifinal match. And I think, you know, going into a final, especially after you've had a big win, especially after you've, played a performance that you consider to be 12 out of 10 where, you know, you're, you're at your, your very best. It's, it's common that there can be some bit of a letdown, especially when you're playing Novak and especially when he's motivated the way that he was, especially from, you know, 
both 2021, where he lost, didn't play his best against Medvedev, and 2022, where he wasn't, you know, wasn't able to play. Um, I think with with both of those, you know, he was clearly up against a highly motivated opponent. And were there certain moments of vulnerability for Djokovic? Yes, I think definitely in that second set. But I think Medvedev would have had to bring out that 12 out of 12 or 12 out of 10 level again. And he was, you know, I don't think he played poorly, but I think he was just just short of that ultimately. And I think, um, yeah, I think there's, you know, different things that they, he can take away and learn. And I think, you know, he can start to think of, you know, instead of it just being about Djokovic and Alcaraz, you know, maybe he, maybe it is more of a big three and, you know, he's now been to five finals and he's, you know, he's won, he's won one of them. So I think he has certainly more of a claim than, you know, many of the other top five, top 10 players, but um, yeah, no, I think it's, you know, I think if viewed in the right way, he can take a lot, take a lot of that out of this performance as well. I mean, I think in certain ways in that final, he, and I think he talked about this, he, could have tried to adjust more, maybe switch things up. I think, yeah. you know, he didn't necessarily switch up the tactics in terms of his return position, in terms of coming up to net. I think he, you know, didn't necessarily put pressure on Djokovic by coming up to net in the same way. I saw a stat from from Craig O'Shaughnessy um, where I think Djokovic was like 20 for 22 in serving volley points and Medvedev was zero for zero meaning he didn't attempt any. And, and you know, I, I also get that he's a great, Medvedev is a great baseliner, can play, you know, great defense and offense from there. He's not necessarily as comfortable at the net, but sometimes you have to be able to get out of your comfort zone to take the other guy out, to, to take your opponent out of their comfort zone. And it, it didn't seem like he was necessarily able able or willing to adjust and to switch up his tactics in order to change something up to potentially change the outcome. Yeah, I thought I thought he actually did a decent job, though, during points of getting into net at times. And, and he did win the vast majority of his net points. Um, I, given Novak's return position, um, I don't know that certain volley is a great strategy That's anyway true. for yeah. him. But given Medvedev's serve position, even though you would never think of Djokovic as a certain volleyer, it was just such an obvious thing to do on that due side. And you're right. And, and and Medvedev brought that up in the press conference is that he was a little too stubborn about it. And he noted that, you know, his return against Alcaraz was much better than it was against against Djokovic. And uh, he didn't really change it till the third set. And, um, you know, the kind of the air had gone out of his game, I think, a little too much at at that point. Um so yeah, because he brought that up a few times, that his his stubbornness hurt him in that final. Um, but he did play a much better second set, and and it was almost like he had Djokovic on the ropes. But Djokovic can be very difficult to knock out, and 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 he really proved that. And it just seemed like one of those Djokovic sets, Josh, where he just hangs around and he hangs around, and he hangs around. Now we're in a tiebreaker. Now it's like, you know, really close. And then, boom, he wins the last couple points and it's over. And, um, you know, it's almost very 
very different type of player, but that that's the kind of thing Pete Sampras used to do as well, is you get to a really close spot, he, he ends up winning those last couple of points, and you're kind of like, okay, what just happened? How did I lose that set? And Medvedev obviously had an opportunity to win the set. He had an open shot, passing shot down the line. He chose to go back. Djokovic stayed home, made the volley, you know, and Djokovic, I thought, did a good job of staying home several times during that second set, probably because he was tired. And, um, and instead of uh, covering the open court, and, and Medvedev was a little bit stubborn there, I would say, too. He just kept trying to go behind Djokovic. And Djokovic, because of maybe feeling tired, didn't, didn't move and just stayed. And, or maybe that was part of the scouting report, that they knew that Daniil would go behind him more often uh, than, than go for the open court. <clears throat> so um, I think Medvedev, it's great to see him playing like this. He's obviously a great hardcore player. And like you said, I think, Josh, you're right. He's, he's certainly a legit number three, top big three kind of guy. He's of, that, of his generation. He's the only one really who believes and has played with Novak and has beaten him. The others are, are, are not really able to do that on a consistent basis. So um, let's hope that he continues to, to get better because he's fun to watch, I think. Just the way he moves around the court, and and I like your point about how with the, with Alcaraz he's a little bit more focused on the tennis. I think there was one point where maybe he got a bit upset about some some cheering during a serve, but that was the only time that he really uh, engaged with the crowd in, in in a not so positive way. But other than that, I think you're right. He was right on point. He knew he had to play well, and I think he felt like he was playing well. And when you when you feel that, it's easier to let stuff go than it is when you're not, right? When you're not playing well, it's easier to kind of look for excuses about things. And I think he did a really good job, good job of that. Absolutely. And I think you're you're bringing up a good point that when, yeah, when you feel like things are going well, things are going smoothly, it's, yeah, it's, it's easier to, to focus on the tennis in those moments. You're not going to start looking for excuses. You're not going to start, looking for distractions. You're not going to necessarily try to change up the dynamics of the match in that moment. Um, so no, I think it, yeah, I, I think it's a great performance for him and it'll be interesting to see what, what he could do at, you know, the end of this year and also going into next year. I mean, I think, you know, he obviously had a great performance at the 2021 U S open winning it. And then 2022 was not his best year. And, you know, I think he, his ranking dropped out of the top 10. He had a much better year this year though. And, um, you know, brought his ranking all the way back up and now, you know, after this performance as well. And I think he's going to be coming into, you know, the end of this year and next year going, you know, going in with a lot of confidence. So, um, yeah. yeah and that'll and be... even in 2022, not in, overall, not his best year, but it started off well because he, he got to the Australian open final. Yeah, he did. Yep. Lose a two set lead. And I think he actually had a few good hardcore tournaments before things went off. But um, I think it's a be exciting to see what he can do in Australia, you know, this next time around. Right. So. Absolutely. Uh, how about we talk about Coco and Novak and what helped them to be so successful here? Sounds great. Sounds great. Should we start with Coco? Sure. 
Um, so yeah, I think there's there's certainly a lot here. I mean, from the comeback um, to recent changes on her team, including bringing in Brad Gilbert, um, to you know what what she said after the match. So I think there's there's a number of different things that we can look at here. Um, I think Brad bringing in Brad Gilbert, and I, I may be partial to this because you know we we've, we've talked a lot about him in in the past. Um, here and I've you know we, we've talked about his book um, Winning Ugly, but I think bringing in somebody like that, I think what what Brad really understands is how to how to find a way, how to figure things out, how to win a match, and you know how to win ugly, how to get the job done, you know, and, and find a way ultimately. Um, and that's really what she did in in that final. She found a way. It, it wasn't pretty in the first set for her. Um, you know, lost that first set six two, but you know, managed to to win that second set. It was it was a battle, and then you know, uh, was you know clearly ahead in that in that third. And I think, um, you know, maybe if we wanted to start with Brad Gilbert, I think it's interesting. You know, there's I think been a lot of comments in the last couple of years about Coco's forehand. You know, people look at other parts of her game, for instance, her serve and her speed and defense and her backhand, and they're sort of, you know, they're textbook. They're they're sort of what, you know, what what people would think of in terms of, um, you know, form, and then they're they're pretty clear strengths: her serve, her speed, her her defense, and her backhand. Uh, but her forehand, I think, and I. I pretty sure she uses a more extreme grip like a more extreme western grip and it's been you know it's been to some extent a weakness for her um and it was interesting when brad gilbert came in there was a lot of talk about oh are we gonna you know are you gonna change the grip or are we gonna make major changes to the forehand they said no not not right now not before the u.s open you know we're gonna sort of stick with it and and you know she can make it she, you know she can play with that forehand that she has and, you know, without making any changes, without focusing so much on the technique, you see the result. She was able to, you know, make it work and, and win and win the U S open. So I think that that's an interesting point to, to maybe start with that. It, it, you know, wasn't necessarily so much of a focus on technique or the need to change her technique that brought her over the finish line and, and ultimately led her to her first major title. Yeah, and I think what Brad's saying is the forehand's good enough. Now, yep. in the, to be fair, in the you know, in the against Mahova, Mahova really went after it, and that was successful to a certain degree. But you know, Coco got through that match, and Sabalenka, I don't think really targeted it in the same way. I think Sabalenka just kind of did what she does, which is hit a lot of hard shots to open court, you know, or a lot of hard shots cross court, wherever. Um, so I think that's a good point. I think the other thing that Brad brings, and, you know, let's be honest, Brad is not necessarily the kind of coach who's going to connect with every single player. He's a very strong personality. He talks a lot, a lot of high energy. Um, so it's, I think it's a good example of this is a good match. And I think what Coco had mentioned that Brad has brought to the team that maybe she needed more of was that fun and enjoyment factor. And we can't forget that, that this is, you know, tennis is, it's a really hard job. It's a lot of grind, a lot of, you know, tedious training. 
And you can get caught up in that. And you can get, um, it can be kind of miserable if you want it to be, because there's a lot of repetition going on. And, you know, to be truly competitive person, you have to enjoy and love the sport. And that's something that I think kind of Brad oozes through his pores is this joy for the game and joy for learning how to figure things out, how to, how to win and, and this really positive energy. And I think that really connected between the two of them. And so I think that was a, to me, that's a, a really important ingredient in, in Coco's development is that she seems to really be enjoying that and connecting with her team in a really positive way. Um, and so that, that's what I really liked about Brad's introduction to the team is he, like he, he, he brought that extra element that perhaps wasn't there um, because for, for various reasons before. Absolutely. And yeah, I think whether people are listening to his commentary or reading his tweets or, you know, listening to his, the nicknames that he has for players, you can, you can sense that passion. So I, I absolutely agree. And I think it, it sort of is that mindset of, you know, let's figure things out. Let's be a problem solver. Let's, you know, we don't have to stick with what's not working. We, you know, we can find a way. We can find a way with, you know, with your forehand as it is right now. It's good enough. Um, so, so um, yeah, no, I, I think that, and I know I know he's not her main coach. I think it's Perry, Perry Reba. Um but yeah, I think his influence as sort of a consultant or as sort of a that extra layer of support seemed to seem to make a, a, a difference there. Um, one thing that, that I think stood out to me and I think maybe stood out to some other people um, was in her post-match, um, I guess, yeah, her post-match interview on the court where, where she was giving her speech on the court and she was talking about being you know, sort of being fueled by some of the doubters or some of the doubts around her and around her performance. And I thought that was interesting um, because, you know, I, I don't think necessarily everyone can do this, but I think for some people, they're able to take, you know, doubts. They're able to take maybe naysayers or people that say that, that they can't do it or, oh, Coco's never going to win a major. Um, and they're able to use that as motivation. And again, we talked a little bit about the motivation of Sabalenka, you know, going forward for the rest of the, the year, but it seemed like she was, you know, she thanked the the people that told her that she couldn't do it and seemed to really use that as motivation. And she even talked about in her press match, post-match press conference that, um, that yeah, that even, ten, you know, even right before the match, even I think 10, 10 minutes before the match, she was she was looking at some of the comments that people were making, um, which which is which was interesting, which is probably not something I would recommend. <laughs> yeah, I don't do. think so either. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, she said. So I really told myself literally up until like 10 minutes before the match, I was just reading comments of people saying I wasn't going to win today. And she was laughing as she was saying that. And then she said that just put the fire in me. So it's it's a unique strategy. Certainly, again, not something I would probably recommend. For everybody to do to you know i think and we could probably devote an episode or or a series of episodes about social media um but i think it's you know i think there's certainly you know 
plenty of cases and probably most cases where people spending time on social media, people listening to everything that people have to say about them probably doesn't help and probably puts them in a more negative state of mind. But for her, it seemed to motivate her. And I think she was, you know, I think part of it is probably she felt ready. Maybe, you know, in that French Open final last year, she wasn't quite ready um, when, you know, when she played Iga. But um, no, you know, maybe part of it was that she felt she was ready. She had that self-belief. And then she sort of used that those comments from others as that extra bit of motivation, that extra bit of sort of fuel for her fire to push her over the edge. And maybe she thought back to that in some of those key moments in that second and third set. So, you know, that, that, you know, kudos to her to, to, you know, getting over the finish line there. And I, I, yeah, I I think this, there will certainly be a lot more to come from her. And I I know it's been, you know, ever since she was what 14 or 15, something like that, where she sort of started to have this breakthrough. And I think there's been a lot of expectations on her throughout the year, which throughout the years, which can be a lot of pressure, but, you know, I think her winning her first grand slam, um, will, yeah, will take a lot of that pressure off. And now she can, you know, just focus on her game and doing her thing and maybe doesn't have to listen to all the comments and all the critics and, um, you know, look at all the social media posts and what people are saying. And and maybe she can focus just on her game or maybe she continues to do that and turn, and maybe that's what motivates and, and motivates her and inspires her. Yeah, some some athletes do like the kind of like I'll show you type of attitude, you know, where others might take some of those comments more to heart and feel bad or let them uh, creep in and create doubt and so forth. And obviously she's she's the type who can look at that and, and say, yeah, I'll show you kind of play the, you know, you're not you're not respecting me. I'm going to go out there and prove that I'm, I'm better than you think I am, you know, and I think. Um, it's great that she's able to do that. Like you said, Josh, that's probably not a strategy we would promote to everybody. But um, if you know yourself and you know you're able to do that, I know some players that I play with or compete with um, that are great at that. They and, and some of them, whether they even know it or not, are, are almost like looking at the environment and looking for somebody to disrespect them. And then it gets them going. And then they got a lot, they've got a lot of energy for that match. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one of those sort of self-awareness type of things. The whole, uh, you know, looking at social media before, you know, you were telling me kind of the story of what Djokovic was doing with his team. Kind of the opposite, right? Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, he took a different approach. And I think Djokovic seemed to think back to a couple of years ago where he, you know, where he lost to Medvedev, where he was going for the calendar Grand Slam of you know winning all four majors the same year and here's a quote from him from his post-match press conference where um, which I, which i thought was very interesting just hearing about how he tried to navigate this moment and sort of the expectations and the thoughts about this moment but also manage some of the people around him in his environment um, so here's his quote i wouldn't say probably that it was easy Easier comparing to to what exactly, we don't know, because I don't think too many players were in that position. I guess people have comeback stories. I love them too. They motivate me. Obviously, different circumstances, Australia and here. I haven't played any tournament on American soil for two years, and the last time I was here, I lost in the finals against the same player I beat today. You know, 
I really did my best in the last 48 hours not to allow the importance of the moment and what's on the line to get in my head. Because two years ago, that's what happened. So it's interesting, first of all, that he's saying that. And then he says, and I un- and I underperformed and I wasn't able to be at my best and I was outplayed. So I learned my lesson. My team, my family knew the last 24 hours, don't touch me, don't speak to me about you know the history of what's on the line. I really did my best to keep things quite simple and stick to the routines that brought me to where I am and treat this match really as any other match where I just need to win. But of course, you know, lots of different thoughts going through my head. What if, what if scenarios, images that you have in your mind of, you know, what, what it will look like if you win and also if you lose, you know, so I'm trying to block those, those ones. So it's interesting him talking about, you know, both thinking about what happened two years ago um, and, you know, and also thinking about the circumstances that, you know, and, and really with, with him now, you know, he was at 23 majors. Now he's at 24, you know, to get from 22 to 20, to get from 21 to 22, he tied Nadal's men's grand slam record to get from 22 to 23. He, he broke Nadal's grand slam record, tying Serena. Now getting from 23 to 24, he's passing Serena, tying Margaret court. So it's, you know, it's, Pretty much at every step right now, you know, every time he wins a major, he's breaking history. But he's talking about how, how, yeah, try instead of trying to focus on that, instead of him thinking about both the history and what happened two years ago, or letting the people around him talk about it, bring that up to him, he's really focused on managing both his own mindset and that environment around him. Um, and yeah, and, and then he's also talking about, you know, while he's out there, he's having some of these thoughts is what if this happens? What if that happens? Um, both positive and negative. What if I win? And and what if I lose? Right. And I think these are thoughts that every tennis player has, um, you know, thinking about what does this mean for my ranking? What are people going to say? All of these sorts of things. Um, so I think it's important for for all tennis players to recognize that you know, these are thoughts that number one, people that you're playing with are having, but number two, the best players in the world have similar sorts of thoughts. Um, but I, I thought it was a really interesting approach. And I think an approach that worked for him again, as you said, Brian, a different approach than, than Coco took, but um, I think an approach that was, that he used really effectively. And again, self-awareness, he knew what he needed. And that, that was the thing I was most impressed about was managing the environment around him. Like, Everybody knows what not to talk about. Um, and it let him then focus on the good routines and habits that he has. And I think that's really important is that you get back to doing what you do and simply letting that help you to, to make sure that your performance is, is where you want it to be. Very often distractions can can take us out of our, our good habits and good systems. And so he was just trying to simplify everything. Let me just continue to do everything that I do. Just focus on that. And if I do those things well, then I obviously give myself an, an excellent chance of winning. I thought another theme that the two shared was this idea of being persistent, being resilient. Um, obviously, Coco having to come back from a first set loss. And really, Novak having to deal with Medvedev playing very well in that second set, some really long points. I think Novak was definitely feeling it a bit, you know, physically in that second set, but yet he never, he never gave in. 
and and he managed to to just to be persistent and resilient enough to pull out that second set and and once that was once he did that i think um you know the match was pretty much in his favor and uh, he really couldn't see medvedev coming back so um i think just an impressive way for novak based on his experience again knowing himself what he needed um he managed that environment around him and he did the things he needed to do he was able to stay focused on those positive habits and of course when you do that it's it's able you're able to manage those other thoughts better accept them be able to dismiss them more and so he's got so much experience in that so um yeah great accomplishment for him he's now got 24 major titles no reason to see him stopping at this point and um It'd be very interesting to see what happens with the rest of the year and into, you know, into the Australian Open. Definitely. And he spoke about that motivation piece as well. You know, he, him being 36, competing with 20-year-olds um, and, and talked about that motivation piece. He brought up, you know, certain champions from other sports, whether it's LeBron James or Tom Brady um, and how they, you know, have they continued to raise the bar at, at later ages. Um, and that seems to really, you know, push him and motivate him, um, as does, you know, it, it seems that the sort of tr- uh, title count seems to seems to motivate him and push him as well. Um, so I, th- I thought that was interesting and didn't necessarily hear the motivation piece from Medvedev, but just from from the press conferences of Sabalenka, Coco and Djokovic in, in three very different ways, hearing that that motivation piece and how they, you know, both all seem to be pretty clear about some of the factors that motivate them, whether that's Coco with, you know, some of the, the doubters, whether that's Sabalenka thinking about the rest of the season and sort of holding on to, you know, her number one ranking or whether that's Djokovic thinking about, you know, continuing to make more hit more and more history um, and to, you know, do maybe what's never been done in terms of being this successful at this age and this stage in his career. And I think it's great for everybody to think about what are some of the things that really drive me? What are some of the things that have been the positive motivators in the past? And positive doesn't have to mean positive emotions. It could be something like proving something to someone else. But um, the more that you explore that for yourself and understand it, then the more intentional you can be around that, the more you can manage your own environment as you begin to compete rather than letting just sort of the circumstances of the day drive performance. I think that's always the thing we're looking to do, Josh, is the more self-awareness we have, the more we can be intentional about how we use motivation, use other mental skills to to create that, that perfect environment for us. So, well, that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to our 2023 U.S. Open recap. For more on today's episode, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback for the two of us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you are enjoying the content that Josh and I discuss on the show, please rate and review the podcast so other tennis enthusiasts can find it more easily. Additionally, to be notified of new episodes, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube. You can also check us out on Instagram. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash tennisiqpodcast. 
slash membership, where you can learn about the benefits of being part of the Tennis IQ podcast community. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.